0: Hey, good morning, Ballard. Uh, my name is Jack. I am, where does Brad usually stand? Like up? Is this okay? Is this good? Casual? Um, I am the pastor at Bethany Northeast, which is over in Lake City, our community, Bethany's community over in Lake City. Um, and excited about being here. This is actually home for me. I used to live. Just up the street for about 10 years, we, my family and I did. We moved over to Lake City a couple years ago. This is kind of making noise. Is that me? Tim? Oh my gosh. Tim and I set this mic up, so I'm be switching it up. If I don't move, I just do this. If I don't turn my head and just like, hey, it's going to be great, guys. Trust me on this one. Um, anyway, so excited to be over here because it's kind of like coming home. I still get my hair cut in Ballard and do my coffee in Ballard and pretty much over here throughout the week. And then I do some things over in Lake City. So I love you guys. And um, it's kind of a hard week to stand in for Brad um, for a couple reasons. One, it's kind of like the bookends of life experience right now. So on the one end of life experience we have, I wouldn't throw this picture up of Brad and Carrie, or of Carrie and Caleb. So this is, uh, yeah, I know you guys are on social media. This is Caleb Joseph Thayer. Congratulations. Um, 8.15 pounds, Brad had to be very precise, 21 inches long, and a loud cry. That's those are Brad's words. So um, yeah, and that's just a lot of looking at Carrie and But that name, I mean I, I don't know exactly what Caleb and Joseph mean, but I know there's stories. Caleb was told by uh, to be strong and of good courage and then Joseph uh, says to his brothers, um, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And in a week like this, on the other end of our life experience, tough to stand in for Brad because, I mean, I don't know how vulnerable you feel this morning coming to a place like this, but it's, it's like, again, experiencing um, just awful things. And so they have to stand in. I mean, I know you'd love to have your pastor here, so I'm going to do my best, but um. Maybe we should just pray into that with uh, this community. We lived in, my wife and and our kids and I lived in Pennsylvania, but western Pennsylvania, or eastern Pennsylvania for about five years. And so, uh, just kind of feel a connection to Pittsburgh, even though it's half a world away. It's just like Spokane is to Seattle in some ways, but it's like, it's hard to um, hear what's going on over there. And as a church even, you know, kind of feel like even as a Jewish community, you feel like Man, these are brothers and sisters, and I want to care for them well. So let's take a moment to pray for the people of Squirrel Hill and this this community there. Pray for the Thayers, and then we'll just dive into what God has to say to us this morning, okay? You join me in praying. God, thank you for the morning that we have been given to gather in your presence, um, to be reminded of who you are, that you're good, um, that you are full of grace and truth, more than enough for each of our lives. Um, And so we bring in need, God, each of us do personally. We bring the need of the world to you. Uh, This community in um, Pittsburgh is just shattered right now, God. And so we bring in the needs of that community. We intercede on their behalf. We lament the brokenness of our country and our world and the hatred that is just spilling out. Um, God, we know you're broken, and your heart is broken because of that. So we stand here, God, in your presence. You're good. You're full of grace and truth. We're reminded of who we are in your presence, that you long to transform us, Uh, you long to make us, remake us into your image. We come here longing to be shaped, God, to be a people of hope in this city, in this world. Thanks that you've put us here for this purpose. Um, So fill us now with your spirit, we pray. Christ. Um, So to start, man, I might just switch off this mic and go with the other one. All right. This is this is how I roll over northeast, so it's okay. I don't use one of those because <laughs> I got a weird head, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so to start, um, earlier this week I, got, I found an article on the New York Times website from January or from September twentieth of nineteen twelve. <laughs> Throw it up. You're not gonna be able to read it. I'm gonna read it. Um, it's like I got like the microfish article. I don't even know how I did that, but um, it's called the Age of the Superlative. And it's a really short one. It says, Ours is the age of the superlative. The world seems to be bent on breaking records in every field of human endeavor. The biggest ships, the fastest ships, the largest guns, the greatest speed in flight and travel are striven for. A French aviator has reached the altitude of 18,635 feet, more than three and a third miles, but everybody knows he will not hold that record for long. Chicago's paying $11 per hundredweight for beef on the hoof. I don't even know what that is. So, but the price will be 15 before Christmas. The new building on the site of the Equitable Assurance Society burned structure is to be the biggest in the world and as large as three, the three biggest buildings in New York put together. Uh, there's a sort of gratification in the contemplation of big things, even big prices, and there is not much significance in the reflection that bigness is not everything. Of course it's not. But the lesson, the legend of the Tower of Babel is uh, w- uh, will never be heeded. We are going to have bigger ships, bigger guns, higher flights, faster railroad travel, still larger buildings before our craze for the superlative is cured. We'll spend the largest sums of money ever exper- expended since the world began to get glory of this kind before we're content. We know well there are, n- there are better kinds of glory, but the age of the superlative must take its course. I mean, that's 106 years ago, and nothing has changed. Um, I mean, it's true on TV, like, greatest show of all time, we all have our own. Like, Westworld? No, no. Game of Thrones? No. Walking Dead? I mean, those are kind of dark and macabre shows, I know. But film, Uh, there's Marvel upon Marvel upon... I know Brad's a big Marvel movie fan, and he's always telling me, no, 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 this one's the biggest and the best, and it's going to be even better. Uh, There's politics, there's these... You know, in a political season, there's slogans and promises from left, side ce- left right, center. It doesn't matter who you are. Over promising, under delivering. Um, every era has a, a goat, like a greatest of all time. So for me, growing up in the 80s, it was Michael Jordan. And now apparently it's LeBron James. And who knows who's going to be? You know, you, you're thinking Kobe or you're thinking whoever you're thinking. Um, and here's the deal. <laughs> Christ followers are not immune to this. So we search for the bigger, the better in forms of church and faith experience. I'm really grateful to be here because you guys have, have uh, you're swimming upstream against that. You're saying, no, community going deep is is more important than bigger and better, better lights, bigger buildings. Um, but when we insist on that, the way, when the way shapes and forms of our own faith experience insist upon those kinds of things, we fall prey to this age of the superlative. Um, in fact, the disciples, remember this early in the Gospels, when they come to Jesus, this is in like Mark 9, and they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? You know, who's the, who's the coolest? Like, who wears the coolest clothes? And what, what does Jesus say to them? If anyone wants to be first, where do you go? Back of the line. If you want to be great, be like the youngest, be like the youngest. He totally flips the script. He says, basically, uh, someone said, in Christ's kingdom, the way to go up is to do what? Go down. That's the way up. And so he subverts this superlative nature within us. He calls us, uh, he swims upstream against the superlative um, culture that we are in. I mean, it was true then. It's true now. And the same way here in Romans 5, Paul uses a very subversive, superlative language, actually, to do the same. So four times in the passage we read a couple of them. Paul uses this really interesting Greek idiom. It's it's how much more. It's this idiom palo malone. And in classical Greek this is a way of arguing from the less to the greater. And so he's using this four different times in the passage. For example in verse 15 we didn't read this. The gift is not like the trespass for if any died for the if one died for the trespass how much more palo malone did God's grace and the gift that came through him overflow to the many, right? So he's, he's basically saying, uh, God's grace is greater than anything you can imagine. And so throughout the passage, he's offering this sort of superlative language to um, unwind us a little bit from both our own nature, like, hey, the way up is down. The way to be great is to become less. Also, within the culture we live in, I mean, we're living in a culture that says values bigger, better, more, more things, bigger, kind of salary, bigger house, bigger car. I mean, all that stuff. Swim upstream against that. That's the way the world will know you're a follower of Christ. And into the superlative life of God. So the life that God desires for you, it is superlative, but remember what he says. "I've come, Jesus, John 10, 10, I've come to give you life, life to the full. And that's not a full life. That is ultimately an empty life. And so I want to invite you to a new life. So Romans 5, Paul gives us these three superlatives um, that are of the gospel. And I want to just share them with you. Uh, they kind of outline. So in the bulletin, I've got them for you. The superlative of suffering, um, the superlative of salvation, and the superlative of grace. Okay, we'll spend most time on the first one, um, which just worked out that way, but I think in a week like this, it, it deserves a lot of attention. And then a little bit less on the second, and, and we'll, we'll kind of pray out on the third, okay? So, so if you have your Bible open, in Romans 5, verse, the superlative of suffering, I'll read verse 3. It says, not only so, okay, Uh, we glory in our suffering is because we know that suffering produces what? Perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who's been given to us. So for context, how many have been here kind of through the journey so far? Romans 1 to 4. This isn't like attendance right now, but you've been around. So um, what Paul does here is, is... he says, not only so. It's it's not it's not the Palome Malone, but he's kind of saying, uh, in Romans one to four, he articulates one of the most important ideas in Christian in the Christian theology. It's certainly in the Protestant Church. This idea of by faith alone, solo fide. That's what Martin Luther kind of his golden idea, right? By faith, we're saved by faith alone, not by works. Okay, and and so in that way, by beginning Romans five, not only that. I'm going to raise the bar a little bit. I mean, that's amazing when he says that because I've got something amazing, even greater than I had just shared with you to share now. And that thing, what he tells us, uh, we just heard is rejoice in suffering. And you're like, let's go back to Romans 1 to 4 because that's like kind of weird, you know? And and so he says it's something the Bible actually says in many ways, many times, many places, rejoice in suffering. The Bible's always talking about this. Um, it talks about it so often that it is actually one of the ways that you'll know if you're a Christ follower, if you can rejoice in suffering. So he, Jesus tells this parable based on this, in the, uh, the parable of the four, four soils. It talks about there's four different kinds of people and most of them act, most of us, act like we believe, like we, we prayed to receive Christ. We kind of put on a good show. You know, as they say, you put on your Sunday best. We act like we profess faith. We believe in God. We know the songs, the theology. But if you remember the parable, there's one of the one type of soil that, that consists of people who spring up quickly, right? They receive the word of God with joy. But when trials and troubles come, what happens? When they suffer, they're burned away in the trial. And they're gone like dust. So what Paul is trying to say here and what Jesus says, what the Bible's saying is the ability to uh, rejoice, to to stay true to God in suffering, to stand firm in suffering is a wonderful gift. It's a unique gift. And it's also a test. And by the way, I don't mean a test by God as if he's some sort of cosmic killjoy. He's like delighting in our, our own, he's doling out suffering on us saying, I'm going to see if you can, you know, can survive. That's not what I'm saying. Instead, here's what I'm saying. As a, as a pastor, I've been pastoring about 10 years. I'm 45, if you can believe it. So I've found in general, uh, people are much more willing, older generations of people, much more willing. I, were, we worked, I worked at a church in Pennsylvania that had majority kind of boomers, older folks. And so I, did, I would do more funerals every year than I did baptisms and weddings combined. And so I had a lot of exposure to suffering and much than a lot of younger people here, and myself included, much more willing to agree to and accept the idea of suffering than these new, newer generations are. We, typically, I'm saying we as younger people, and maybe this is true of you if you're a little older, aren't fond of suffering. In fact, we, we kind of avoid it. Um, and you can see if you read history, if you read bi- biography, if you just pay attention to the culture trends and lines uh, today, like the sheer number of uh, happiness titles on the like self-help shelf at Amazon. Like there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. They all show us that the the average person today, when they come up against suffering, talks like this. This is not right. Like life isn't supposed to be this way. I don't deserve this. I work hard. I do good. This isn't fair. This is going to make my life meaningless. I need to find a way around this, past this, over, you know, like that bear, that we're going on a bear hunt, got to go around it, under it, not through it. Um, and, and so do you see why this is such a test in the Bible? Because it exposes you and your theories of what life should be like and and your theories of what you deserve and your theories of what people are supposed to be like and what nature is supposed to be like. And so if you suffer in this way and you're shattered, it proves that your view of things uh, are unsound, at least not based on God because you, you can't account for reality you can't reconcile a good God with a world of suffering or a good God with a world that uh, a body that has cancer i can't do that because I'm not supposed to suffer right you're with me that's the reason this is such a test uh, and here's my observation though in Seattle in in general and Bethany culture in particular uh, this isn't maybe as much of a problem for us because like we are a little odd. <laughs> Uh, we choose suffering frequently. And I know this because I was talking to Richard. Our social media feeds are just filled with this, like people climbing in the Cascades and running ultra marathons and killing it in the CrossFit gym. You guys have CrossFit gyms all over Ballard. It blows my mind. Or practicing, like embracing keto as a way to actually be healthy. I don't get it, except for bacon. So, and I know this because I'm one of those odd ducks. On, on Friday, my day off, it's pouring rain. What did I decide to do? 80-mile gravel bike ride with a couple of my friends in the pouring torrential rain on the Cascades, went over the John Wayne Trail all the way to uh, Easton. It was type 3 suffering. So I looked this up on REI. There's type 1 suffering, which is like when you do a little cliff jump as a high school kid and you think it's the craziest thing ever. Remember that time? And then you go back as an adult. You're like, (laughs) it was 10 feet. There's type 2 fun, which is like the time when you're doing it and you're like hating it, but then you're like, when can I do this again? And there's type 3 fun, which this was. I'm literally telling my friends, next time you ask me to do this, will you punch me before we go? Because this is the stupidest thing we've ever done. I mean, it was I was soaked, agonizing, and yet in the Pacific Northwest, we are conditioned to choose suffering like this. We love it, like because our faith in the long term outcomes. Like we believe it's somehow I, on that day of suffering in the Cascades in a torrential downpour, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be more fit, stronger cyclist. 5 a.m. CrossFit workout. You know, I'm going to be stronger keto. I'm going to live longer. Like, we'll be better people for doing this. And and we're partially right, because Paul tells us, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Right? So we do that. But here's the deal. The suffering that we embrace, generally, and specifically here, Bethany, is not the suffering Paul's talking about. I'm sorry. It's cool that you do keto, or you do CrossFit, but... God is concerned with something fundamentally different. In verse 3, Paul uses this word suffering that is this Greek word thalipsis. And in the Greek, this is a a Greek metaphor for the pressing together of two things, like mashing them together. If you were taking two um, uh, Starbursts and mashed them together, actually, it's really yummy. If you ever do, like, especially the lemon and the raspberry. I saw a squirrel, sorry. Anyway, so... um, that's what this is the lips is pressing two things together and in the metaphor frequently used in the new testament to describe outside pressure so if you have two things being pressed together it's actually the fingers pressing them together and that's oppression so the sufferings are trials tribulations affliction persecution they're outside pressure being exerted upon you and in other words tribulations is key because It helps us see that these sufferings, unlike the sufferings of the CrossFit gym or the Cascade bike ride I did, are given to us. They're put upon us. They're not chosen. So uh, you want good blood work. You want weight loss. You want confidence in a better core. You want better sleep. So you choose the path of whatever you choose and you walk in it and you're disciplined with it. Those are sufferings are chosen. You choose that, right? Tribulation, like the life-threatening infection, uh, the cancer, a member of our community last week told us that she has brain cancer, has twin daughters. Um, she's not even 40 yet. Um, the job loss, the, the sexual abuse, the failed relationship, another tragic shooting. Um, that is tribulation. That is suffering that is just exerted upon us. We're not choosing it. God's not choosing it, but it's part of a broken and fallen world in which we live. And we're being pressed together um, it's any manner of losses, disappointments, tragedies, a sense of failure. And in that sense, it's, it's, I'm not given like God gives us a Christmas present. Like I said, it's, it's not that, but it's it's this, it's put upon us, okay? Which is why Paul says in verse 3, we rejoice in it. <laughs> uh, he's saying at a level, it's a test. And at another level, it's, a, it's an ability. To rejoice in suffering is an ability. It's a unique ability. So you have, a, as a Christ follower, a unique ability to look in the face of suffering, and say, as Paul says elsewhere, "Oh, death, where's your sting? Where is it? I know it's happening. I know this. This is hard right now, uh, but I can re- I can stand in it. I can have joy in it, uh, and that's absolutely counterintuitive. This is why it's a superlative of suffering, because it it, it confronts." the world we live in, and it also presses us to understand or reconcile together this idea that we have a God who is fundamentally good in his nature and yet allows suffering in the world. And to live within, live joyfully within the midst of that is so counterintuitive and so hard to do and that's why it's an ability. It's a unique ability. It's a gift. Uh, so what does it mean, real quick, to, to rejoice in suffering? Because I know you need some handles here. I mean, uh, how do I do that? Right? Like in the wake of what happened in Pittsburgh. How do I rejoice in that? Well, let me tell you what it isn't first. This is not stoicism, okay? Like Billy Ocean, who's saying, when the going gets tough, where do the tough go? They get going, they get rough, right? That's I mean, like he made millions on that song. That's not what this is. Like, many people tragically think that's what it means to be a Christian. Like, being a Christian means you have this inner invulnerability. <laughs> like you're immune to you have an insulating power, spiritual insulating power against suffering. You just praise Jesus. You're not cast down. You're not thrown to the ground. You're never, you're never unhappy. You're always happy, right? Shiny, happy people, right? But that's not the Christian approach. That's stoicism. And Christianity is not stoicism. Okay. It's also not masochism. Like I've heard people say this. Oh yeah, I'm suffering. I'm suffering for Jesus. Like I'm carrying my cross. Um, Bad things are happening to me. It's so awesome because it shows that God loves me, and that's not what Paul's saying. He's not a masochist. Christianity is not a is mas- not masochism, and yet there are people who think that's what this is. Like, I, if I'm not suffering, maybe I'm not being faithful, and and that's that could be. There could be nothing further from the gospel than that. And Paul doesn't say that. He says he doesn't say I rejoice for my sufferings. He doesn't say, I rejoice in spite of my sufferings. He says, I rejoice in suffering. And that is so key. Those prepositions are so key, which means this. I think it has to do with empathy, actually, more than anything. In other words, you've been given this supernatural capacity to experience the suffering in the the world that you previously didn't have. Like, you really are in suffering. This is why when a member of your community who gets brain cancer uh, is cast down you're cast down with her this is why when someone in your life is grieving you you grieve with them this is why when there's loss and pain half i mean like 3000 miles away in a community of faith that doesn't even really believe exactly the same as you believe you hurt as a follower of Christ uh it means that you when you give your life to Christ you're going to weep more than you and guys listen you're going to weep more it's okay men you're going to weep more than you used to you're going to be more uh, willing to be more involved with people emotionally than you were before your heart is going to break open for others this is why in Ezekiel God says I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh because that's the heart I designed for you you're going to be able to say like Ruth said to Naomi after Naomi's husband died and Ruth's h- husband died. And Naomi's saying, just go home. I'm old. You'll never have a life with me. What does Ruth say to her? Don't urge me to leave you. (laughs) Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. That is supernatural for her to say that. And you've been given that ability, friends, to stand, rejoice in suffering with others, to be with them in it. See the brokenness of the world and not rationalize it away, and try to explain it because you now have the capacity, with Christ in you, to be with others in it. You're in suffering. That's one dimension. On the other hand, uh, it's not. It's not that you're just able to stand in it and just say, "Hey, it's okay. We're gonna be. We're gonna get through this." You're able to rejoice in it. So suffering actually enhances your joy. Now, somebody in the room is saying that certainly sounds like masochism, Jack. And you said this wasn't that. So let me explain. Um, it's in verse 3, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay? Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. So, in verse 6, the hope is, if you read it, is because of Jesus dying on the cross, and we get a sense of his love on our hearts during the suffering, through the influence of the Spirit. There's sort of an economy here of things. So the so the Holy Spirit shows us that Christ died for us. And that's what the suffering is really ultimately all about. And when we realize how much God loves us to allow Jesus to suffer and die for us, uh, it's, during, it's during that, when we're in our own suffering or the suffering of another person, that we can say, oh my goodness, this stinks. I'm hurting so badly, but it is a pinprick compared to God's love and what he suffered for me. It enables you to see, if you really allow yourself to see it, that the death of Jesus was not martyrdom. It was not meaningless torture. It was a way of opening up the universe to us to see that God has a capacity to suffer and will suffer with us, as Hebrews says. He learned suffering through Jesus. And and, and as that suffering gets heavier and heavier, the joy gets stronger and stronger because you know you are being united with God. United with God. So he said Paul says this, as we suffer and as we persevere in suffering we develop character and hope and hope comes from God hope always comes from God so if you persevere and you hold on in perseverance to what God has done on the cross and you, and you look at what he's done and you go back to your roots as a follower of Christ and you go back to all your resources you find your hope growing you don't find it diminishing because when you suffer and when others around you are suffering, the world around you is suffering, you're given this opportunity to grasp and understand and see into Jesus' heart. And that is a profound experience that I believe that only a Christ follower is given the gift of. And then his, his sufferings become of value to you. Uh, and by the way, that's what we mean when we say that we're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Being saved is not a cosmic ticket to heaven. It's not a get out of jail pass. It is an opportunity that you've been allowed to experience the mystery of transformation here and now. You've been accepted into that mystery through Christ's death. What Paul says in Philippians two, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of resurrection by becoming like him in what? His death. I want to be united with God in every way, shape, and form. So Jesus is saving the world, saving you and me, by guiding us through all the would-be deaths of our lives, all the failures, all the disappointments, all the things that happen outside of us, to a life that's always, always bigger than death. And accepting that as salvation, (laughs) that's the gift. And so here's the question as we transition. Uh, Where and how can you learn to rejoice right now? In what are you suffering like, it may be this shooting yesterday, and you are just being ripped apart. It may be something very personal that you haven't shared yet with anybody. It could be a, a coworker or a friend who is is really burdened right now. How can you learn not to be happy, happy, joy, joy, but learn to stand in it, rejoice in it, uh, and see Christ working through it? That's your work right now. <laughs> It's our work as followers of Christ, to be with others in suffering, okay? Does that make sense? That's the superlative of suffering. Let me talk a little bit about the superlative of salvation. This is kind of a bread and butter thing at Bethany. So some of you, have, I've recognized some faces that have been at Bethany for a long time. I heard Richard preach this message, so I won't spend a ton of time on it. But verse 10, this is what Paul says. For if, while we are God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through his, the death of his son. How much more? There's the superlative, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? Okay, get this. I thought I was saved by his death, right? That's what I was taught. Through young life, good evangelical roots, uh, and now it said I'm being saved through his life, and the life seems to come in this sentence after the death what's going on, Paul? Like, help me here. When we think of salvation, we think of this transaction, in other words, that Jesus lived, suffered, crucified, died, rose, reigns. We confess that, put our faith and trust in him. Boom, we're saved. It seems like in here, it's an ongoing process. We were reconciled to God and we will be saved. That is strange. If you're, I mean, I'm just, I don't know if that's strange to you. Is it strange to anybody else? Maybe not. Okay, (laughs) I'll move on. No. Reconciliation, what I'm trying to say, is an accomplished fact. Past tense, that's what Paul says. Salvation, though, is this future tense continuing process. It's ongoing. So in theological terms, it's uh, sanctification. God's renewing us, restoring us, and transforming us. That's what God's all about today. And in that way, that verb tense is so important. You've been made right with God. That's reconciliation. You've been reconciled to God, okay? And you are being transformed by God. That will continue your entire life. It will never stop. That's what it means to be born again, by the way. Uh, you've been given a new spirit with a new capacity for a new identity. Born again is not a prayer you did one day. Born again is being transformed by God, new spirit, new capacity for a new identity. That's your whole life. And thus, in that way, salvation doesn't isn't this ticket you get when you said the sinner's prayer and poof, it's a constant process friends of recognizing, receiving and consenting to the life of Christ. Christ isn't. And by the way, he's not living his life beside you. Go back to CrossFit like a personal trainer. He's not a motivational speaker. As Paul says in this verse that we love at Bethany in Colossians 1 he's living his life in you. He's living his life in you and not just in you, but, but through you, he wants to live his life through you. Uh, if, the, if Christian life were an equation, we often think of it as a matter of one plus one. Like, me plus Jesus equals what? A better me. Thank you, Jesus. I'll talk to you next week. That's kind of how we approach Christianity. I think of it like multiplication. Uh, me times Jesus. So my old self, including all my warts and wounds, all my failures and flaws, and my gifts and my strengths, my capacities, my talents, times Jesus, one times one equals what? One and that one is always Jesus. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. You're not looking at Jack Brace. You're looking at Jesus. I'm not... (laughs) But I'm serious. Theologically, it's so true. Christ lives in me. He lives in every one of you inasmuch as you've consented for him to live there. And he will continue to express more and more and more of himself your entire life. That's salvation. That's transformation. And when you loop back to the idea of suffering, because I'm not a masochist with respect to Christ's suffering, not his, not mine, I'm somebody who's identified with Christ. I've identified with Christ, his life and his death, and in my identification with him, I can rejoice in that. Because now he's expressing what it means to be victorious over death through me. And Christ desires to express his whole self, his glory, his power, his capacity to suffer and walk with those who are suffering through loss and grief, all of it. He wants to express all of it through you guys. That's amazing. So it has two vital applications for us. Okay. Here's the first: you are saved from the tyranny of self-effort. We think, you know, man, Christianity is like pulling yourself up from on your spiritual bootstraps, you know? The more we serve, the more we give, the more we read, the more we come to church. 10 a.m. Seahawks game today. You guys are amazing. And then we're in church, the more we serve, the more we give, the more we sing, the more notes we take. I'm not putting you down for taking notes. Uh, somehow, we'll get more of Jesus. And and we'll become more more accepted by God, be liked more by more people, and be more happy, right? That's uh, self-effort. That's a tyranny. That's like... Man, that's so tiring. Remember what Jesus says? He wants to free you from that. Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, come to me. like me First little poll. How many of you are tired? Just a wee tired. could be around anything. Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, come to me, all of you, all of you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you, I will give you rest. I think he's saying, hey, and take my yoke upon you. Allow my life to be expressed through you. That's his yoke learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble of heart. You are, if you allow Christ to live through you, you will find rest for your souls. This is the promise. So here's my paraphrase. Stop pushing. And here's what I mean by that. So some of you guys know who this guy is. Uh, Major Ian Thomas. Richard loves this guy. He's the founder of Torchbearers, that school that Richard teaches at. This is a cool metaphor that is in this book called The Saving Life of Christ. It's kind of an older book, but really, really good if you'd like this stuff. He says, how stupid would it be to buy a car with a powerful engine under the hood and then spend the rest of your days pushing it? Like thwarted and exhausted, you would wish to discard it as a useless thing and get a lime bike. I'm kidding. I inserted that just to see if you're paying attention. Yet to some of you who are Christians, this may be God's word to your heart. When God redeemed you through the precious blood of his dear son Jesus, he placed in the language of my illustration a powerful engine under the hood, nothing less than the resurrection life of God the Son made over to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, so stop pushing. (laughs) Step in, switch on, and expose every hill of circumstance, every opportunity, every temptation, every perplexity, no matter how threatening to the divine energy that is available to you. Stop pushing. You are being freed from the tyranny of self-effort. That is a beautiful thing. Step out into your future. Let Christ live his life through you. That's number one. Here's the second thing. By consenting to Christ living his life through you, you are being restored to your true identity. Your true identity. You are made in the image of God. You are an image bearer. Every one of you. Which has profound uh, applications for our lives. Like, if you really let it sink in. Right after that verse in Colossians that we love at Bethany. Christ is living his life through you, right? That's the mystery of the gospel. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2, 9, and 10. For in Christ, if he's really living his life through you, the fullness of God lives. The fullness of God lives in bodily form. Not just part of God. Not just a little bit of God, a smidge of God. He likes a little bit. He, He just gave me a little bit of himself. The fullness of God lives And in Christ, you've been brought into fullness. You're not half full. (laughs) You're not half empty. That's amazing. The fullness of God is alive in you. All of God's joy, all of God's love, all of God's goodness and power and grace, his patience, his peace, his kindness, everything you can think about God. The fullness of God is alive in each one of you and in this community. That is like that emoji, mind-blowing. So, with respect to our identity, you are freed not from self hatred. Because God does not hate God's self. (laughs) You are free from condemnation. You're free from shame. You're free from bitterness, fear, cynicism, anger. Inasmuch as Christ is the beloved Son of God, you are freed to become beloved and be the beloved. Inasmuch as Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, you are victorious. And you can claim that victory. Inasmuch as Christ is filled with light, living water, abundant fruit, so too are you. And so what's left for you to do? Just become available to Christ. Say, God, I'm available to you. He is only, as Major Thomas says, He is only limited by the measure of our availability. All that's left for you, if you're weary and tired, is just be available to God. And, And he longs to live his life through you. And so would you make yourself available to him? Um, I do this because a friend of mine at Bethany Northeast, Dustin Brumbaugh, some of you guys know him. I'm in a men's group with him. He lives his life this way. Palms up, God, each day. Not my plans, Lord. He's a financial planner. Not my hopes, God. Not my expectations. Not my future. This is what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, I I want it to go different, but not my will. Your will. He wants God to live his life through him. (laughs) And he's the son. Would you let him live through you? Um, so that's the superlative of salvation. Let me finish this way, and we're going to pray. And in fact, I'll invite Tim and the team back up. Um, Paul says in verse fifteen, the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is not like the trespass. That's one of the superlatives. And then in verse twenty, he says he kind of nuances it. Says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And what I think he's trying to say, to put it in really simple terms, is that there's not a single dimension of our lives, like I just said, or of our world that has not been touched, and God does not intend to touch, by grace. Uh, grace is God's capacity to transform everything. But Using Brad's son Caleb's name, Joseph, what you intend for evil world, God will use for good. He will do it because he is filled with grace and truth. So grace is like entering into a new universe. The gift is not like the trespass. We see an enormously evil trespass yesterday, and you're experiencing some of that in your lives. And I think we need to declare with Paul and with God, the gift, the grace of God, is not like the trespass. God is not like that. And the world God is redeeming will will not be like that. And so we stand... uh, we intercede, we, we we pray for God, the desire for God to continue to pour out his grace, both upon us and upon this world. Um, that's what it means to be available. God, would your grace change our world? And so might we say with Paul, this week, the gift's not like the trespass. The gift is not like the trespass. Um, might with gratitude to see the grace of God at work um, in our stories and in the world we live, and then await on God, be available to let me lead us by praying and then I think we have some time to worship together before closing. Will you just join me in praying? Father, we, we commit ourselves to you as a community. Believing that you are working in spite of destructive powers um, and principalities, we again specifically commit to you the people of Squirrel Hill. Would you bring healing and... Uh, And hope and peace to those who are hurting and anxious. Love to those who are fearful. God, we pray for victims and perpetrators. We know that, as Paul says, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of your glory. Would you touch this man and his family and the communities of people that are feeling hatred in our country with grace, God. Your grace changes everything. We're confident of that. As we wait for you, your amazing grace, O Lord. Um, would you change, would you continue to change the world? Do you change the world with it? You change the trajectory our lives are living on with it? Would you continue to do that, God? And would you impart to us the gift of being available to you this week, God? You've put us in workplaces, in neighborhoods, in families. For many of us with Halloween, you've given us doors to open to children. Would you give us availability to you as your spirit comes to our lives? Just to say yes. Extend ourselves to people. To stand in suffering with them. Thank you that you're making all things new, Christ. We pray in your name.